You uh, type, of course. No. Take shorthand? No. Operate calculators? Nope. Keep books? No. File? No. Run a switchboard? No. You speak a foreign language? No. Um... Nope. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 68 this time, which is Erica's choice. Let's find out what she has in store for us. I teased this during the apartment episode, saying that I wanted to find another showcase for Shirley MacLaine. And so I've chosen Sweet Charity from 1969, directed by Bob Fosse, music and lyrics by Cy Coleman and Dorothy Fields, with a book by Neil Simon. It stars Shirley MacLaine, Cheetah Rivera, Paula Kelly, John McMartin, and memorable roles with Ricardo Montalban and Sammy Davis Jr., It's the story of a dance hall hostess who is looking to create a better life and love for herself. I was going to say, the subtitle to this is particularly important. It is The Adventures of a Girl Who Wanted to Be Loved. And just based on the Shirley MacLaine works that we have covered so far, this is a powerful universal theme, right? I can't say I relate It was never a preoccupation for me this way, but a lot of people must feel this, and desperately so, for as often as we're running into it. You know, we just had the honor and pleasure of being on our friend Aaron West's show, Criterion Now, and we covered just the very basics of The Breakfast Club. And I was urging people, especially younger viewers, to maybe not fall into the trap of not identifying with the stereotypes in the film. And I think this is one of the stereotypes that I fell into, which is it's all about finding someone who likes you as opposed to finding someone that you like. So I think in my younger years, unfortunately, I could relate to this. So I see a young Erica Long sleekily draped over the bar doing Hey Big Spender, 10 cents a dance, buddy. And then getting pushed into the lake. (laughs) Well, speaking of Hey Big Spender, that's what we start with. We have an overture, which I love. I'm not huge on musicals, like I've mentioned before, but I particularly like overtures for some reason. They set the tone for me. They get me in the proper mood, I think, to approach the film. Plus, I get the music with no other distractions, at least a sampling of it. I found something that Bob Fosse said that I wanted to lead off with because I think that you of all people can really appreciate this. He said, the time to sing is when your emotional level is too high to just speak anymore. And the time to dance is when your emotions are just too strong to only sing about how you feel. So he's sort of laying down the ground rules for how his musicals work, at least? I think so. And... I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about that, and I think I've got some of the criticisms both for and against that. Okay, I was wondering because I think I probably have a lot of stage-to-screen type questions for you as we go. Speaking of, to me, Bob Fosse establishes right away that we are watching a movie. We're not watching a theater production. Yes and no. Okay. I know we're freed from the proscenium style of shooting. We're not looking at a stage-bound opening sequence. But she is stagey to me in that look how irrepressible I am aiming for the balcony kind of way. So I definitely feel it's stage roots. It doesn't start like a traditional film, certainly. It's interesting that you say stage roots because Shirley MacLaine did not originate the role. That was Gwen Verdon. I have a couple of really fun Gwen Verdon stories as we go, too. Excellent. I spent a lot of last night looking at tons of YouTube clips, which I'm going to put them all into the post. Gwen Verdon was, I think, not arguably, Bob Fosse's greatest muse. They were married at the time, and she helped to conceive of and create this story, as well as the choreography. So when you mention the stage roots for Shirley MacLaine, I'm wondering if... You're thinking instead about 
maybe just her performance being a little bit more stagey or overacted potentially? That's what I mean. I have certain criticisms of this as well. It was not a 100% home run for me, but we'll talk about that stuff as we go. And you know, I'll say it's not a 100% home run for me either, but I really enjoy the difficult parts of it. And I enjoy looking at it out of context, especially, which I'm going to get to in just a second. Because charity is the first thing that we see in our way into this world, I wanted to ask you right away, what do you think about her performance? You started to discuss it a little bit. I really want to know what you think about her voice. So let me put that into perspective for just a second. We meet Charity on her way to a big rendezvous with a total scumbag, we find. She's very irrepressible, and her first song comes right away, and that's My Personal Property. I was going to ask if that was her singing. I wasn't sure. I didn't know going into it if she had performed all of her own vocals. She definitely performed her own songs, and for some reviewers, that was a negative. She is not a Broadway singer, as you might envision one. Well, neither really is Gwen Verdon to me. And I think in this specific film instance, I find it to be a strength. I enjoy that she's not a belter. I feel her emotion and her character in her voice. She's not polished at all. I am remarkably ambivalent about it in this case. You know the type of music I like. Virtuosity does not rate highly for me. In fact, I distrust it a little bit. But... Where the amateurish nature of this might be a strength in some situations, for you, I guess you enjoyed it quite a bit. It didn't put me off, but it also wasn't hugely attractive. So not necessarily a plus or a minus, but mostly flat for you. I just don't think it moved me in either direction. I respond to her as a performer in general. I think I like her quite a bit, her personality, and that is the real strength of her for me. But as a singer and dancer, it's not raw enough for it to be interesting, and it's not polished enough for it to be a knock em dead kid sort of thing. I think, again, that for me, firmly makes it excellent. This is when I start to think about a little bit of what we talked about during the apartment as well. When I think that Bob Fosse can see things that no one else can and was able to put the musical so much more forward than it had been, and it just wasn't the right time. I like that you bring up it being slightly out of time. That, to me, is the best part of this opening, and maybe the entire vibe of the thing. I was immediately struck by what seemed like her flapper aesthetic, and yet it was 1969. It conveys how out of step she is with everyone else. It implies that disregard for societal norms that goes along with the flapper era. But I like how it also simultaneously turns that on its head because to the counterculture that she was wrapped up in or surrounded by, she would seem extremely out of step and outdated, square. And her desires are truly that because I think she's really shooting for the white picket fence ultimately. But to the squares we find out she's something very exotic and maybe even a little dangerous. Her tattoo definitely sticks out. It's not something you would see on a mainstream actress an A-list performer like that. I can't recall seeing a tattoo like that featured so prominently on the body of any leading lady prior to 1969. She is definitely, and not at the same time, a modern gal. I want to talk about time and out of context in a couple of different ways. I like that she is totally a misfit, whether she realizes it in different settings or not. Do you feel like in this case what I would describe as her blissful ignorance is a virtue? Because usually, I don't feel very charitable toward a character like that that is so unaware of themselves, but her pluck and her vigor and her forge-ahead attitude saves me from that a little bit. Do you feel like it fits? It's okay with you that she lacks this self-awareness somewhat? I think of it less as ignorance and more about, I'm sorry to go back to the apartment again, but what came before? When you're told no enough times you can start to believe it and lack that sense of trust within yourself. So point one about the out of time, out of context. I think that her body is not quite right for dancing. Her voice isn't quite right for a big musical. And that's what makes the most sense to me. When we talk about that counterculture that was all around, especially in 1969, 
We have the difference in when the musical was written and came out, which was 1966 to 1969. Those three years are a huge shift. And so I like that she is slightly older. When we look at her fellow dancers, we've got Cheetah Rivera and Paula Kelly, the two principals. Paula Kelly was the youngest of the three. Shirley MacLaine was about 34 or 35 at the time of the film. Cheetah Rivera was just a year older. That is a bit of a surprise to me. She plays, I would say, 10 years older. I was thinking of her more in the range of Gwen Verdon, who did not take up this role in the film because at this point she was 44, and it might have looked quite a bit out of place for that to be your young it girl. I totally agree, and I think part of that is not her body or her movement because she is sheer perfection to me. Cheetah Rivera, I'm speaking of. But her costuming and her attitude... Since you mentioned costuming and I mentioned the flapper aesthetic, we should shout out Edith Head right here because her work on this is fantastic. She talked about the use of costume in this as the art of exaggeration. That This is a satire on fashion, not about fashion, and we'll see that in a couple of different places especially. So back to the out of time idea, we have a person who is older, tattooed, has been through it, has a job that clearly puts her through it surrounded by other people who have seen the same things that she has, and who, to my mind, is completely unconscious of the need to be sexy or having to be a certain way. Now back to the people who actually created this work. Cy Coleman was about 40 at the time, a little bit younger when he actually wrote all of this. Dorothy Fields, oddly, was much older. She was in her 60s at this point. They both were already huge hit makers. Cy Coleman would continue to be. Dorothy Fields died shortly after this by about a few years. A huge, an incredible storied career. Neil Simon was never my idea of, you know, a young hipster, for example. And even Bob Fosse, who had been working forever at this point, still a very young man. I don't think of any of them as being part of the counterculture. And I think that that works to their advantage here. Because again, it's all about misfits. The last point I wanted to make with context. I think it is a benefit to watch this film outside of context. Meaning, I didn't watch it in 1969, hoping for something that was going to just blow the lid off of all musicals, or be the musical to end all musicals, or be some kind of a rock and roll musical, something that it was never designed to be. So it doesn't have to be a comment on its time for it to work for me. And I think some people at that specific time had a problem with it because of that. They had their own agenda in mind going into it, you mean reviewers? Yes, and audiences as well, because it was not a hit by any stretch of the imagination. Nope, it almost sunk the studio. It's weird to think of because it doesn't look super excessive, but it was akin to Heaven's Gate in its day. And the last part of that context, watching it as a very young person, I didn't yet quite know who Bob Fosse was or what the much larger concept of Fosse was. And so I didn't have to compare it to something like Cabaret or all that jazz. I could just take it in as is and make my own judgments. I do want to say something here before we get back to the film itself and the action. I don't want to set this up as... Something that I need to convince people to watch? Well, yes and no, because I think that's one of the functions of the show is to sort of make our case for this, why we love it. So don't feel bad if that's what you feel like you have to do. You did that for me, in fact, to get me into this to watch it for the show. And I think you guiding me through it a little bit helped quite a bit, actually. So don't discount that. Okay. I don't mean to make it sound like it's a dog. Oh, no. Because I chose it and I really love it. I might have loved it a little bit more if right here in the beginning, Charlie, the scumbag you mentioned that throws her in the pond in Central Park, was played by Timothy Carey. That was all I could see. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would have been the greatest thing ever. But he would have had to have had a line. He would have had to have had a song. And while we're talking about that bridge scene, it's funny to me how that comes so unexpectedly to me, even though I know what is coming because of Knights of Kiberia. Thank you so much for mentioning that. I completely forgot to note that at the top of the show. Well, we talked about Neil Simon writing the book and all of the people who contributed to the creation of this stage production. 
but it is based on Federico Fellini's Knights of Cabiria from 1957. Much more about that as we go along. So Charlie the scumbag throws her in the lake, also takes all of her money that she stupidly took out of the bank in order to give to him for their new life. So right away, she is right back where she started, which is back at the Fandango Ballroom where she is a dance hall hostess. Let's put that in quotes. Especially if you know the Fellini source material. Absolutely. And she always believes in the best and in the future. I really like this sequence. I didn't like the opening maybe so much, but as soon as we get to this shot in the Fandango Ballroom dressing room, I really got interested, I think. I love dressing room scenes, the politics of them. We've seen these sorts of things countless times. Usually they are rougher than this and everything from showgirls to the killing of a Chinese bookie on and on. And usually either they're more cutthroat or downbeat. I find them so compelling, I think, because of the behind the scenes nature of them. Performers with their guard down or a different type of guard up protecting themselves from one another. But I'm a sucker for a good dressing room scene and the politics that take place in these. Everybody's getting dressed to start the workday. This is where we meet Nikki and Helene. Nikki is Cheetah Rivera. Helene is Paula Kelly. And the other women who work there. When I first saw this, I honestly didn't know if some of them were drag queens. And I think that that is 100% okay. Do you think maybe even intentional? Absolutely. I don't think you design wigs and makeup like that accidentally, and Edith Head made it clear she didn't do anything by accident. Now, the first time I saw this on television, I just happened to turn over just as Big Spender was starting. I know I say this from time to time. It's always true, and it's going to be true now. It blew my mind. For me, there was before this film and after this film, and that's really all about Bob Fosse. By the way, his whole purpose in moving to New York when he was a young dancer was to become the next Fred Astaire. So before this film, I was used to Fred Astaire films. I didn't know that you could break down a song. I didn't know that you could break down a dance. And so experiencing this through the eyes of the camera was a revelatory experience. Well, it's interesting to me. It caught my attention too, obviously. It is the first big production number and... It's Fosse, so there is sex everywhere, bodies draped over every flat surface, all these come-hither looks. There's a beautiful moment in it that one of the dancers points, as if she's pointing at the person they're singing to, and it so expertly frames Paula Kelly and the other dancer that's with Paula Kelly. I don't think it's Cheetah Rivera, I think it's someone else in this instance. But it's a beautiful example of the thing that Bob Fosse talks about, where when you're on stage, the audience has a choice about where to look. They can watch any part of the action they want to. On film, the camera is making that decision for them. And so you have to be very judicious about where you put it, what you show. Your editing process of these sequences has to be immaculate if you want them to have the impact you intend. And I think this is fantastic. I do think ultimately I did a disservice to you for this because we didn't watch it with all the lights out right up against the TV at full volume, and then we didn't try to act out the dance as I had done. <laughs> Should this be our opening scene instead? <laughs> so really, going back to out of time and out of context, even though I grew up in the 70s and 80s and was seeing amazing people come on the scene and do really fantastic things with dance, this still opened up my world to what music and dance could be. It's still not only my favorite number in the film, I think it might be my very favorite musical sequence in any film. That's kind of shocking. I would have expected it to be something else, although I can see why. It's expertly mounted, that's for sure, and mounted is certainly the right word. It is. It's probably more about when I saw it and it having made such a huge impression on me. I don't think you can ever quite match those big firsts. Back to Fosse as a director. This was the first film he directed. And he arguably, or maybe not arguably, had his greatest work still to come. I would say definitely. I think this feels like a first film for sure. In a way, actually, now that I say that, there's a little bit about it that surprises me that it's his first feature too, because Fosse being Fosse, I would have expected him to swing for the fences a little bit more in that film school, let's try everything we want to try right off the bat kind of way. He did say that he did that, actually. 
He characterized his direction as too many cinematic tricks, trying to be flashy, and that it was just sort of a pitfall that he had to go through on his first film. To talk just for a second about some of that visual style, we're about to see an element of it, which is the use of still image. He's got all kinds of things in here. Zooms, freeze frames, editing to rhythm, tenting. I really like these magazine-style photo layout montages. This is probably another of the visual elements that is my favorite. So it doesn't feel to me like he was overreaching quite a bit. It feels like all these things work pretty naturally for it. Although I know there's a cut that has these taken out. I wonder how that plays. I mentioned that still image. That happens after that number is over. We learn a little bit more about Charity. She's been at the Fandango for eight years at this point. It starts to make me think a little bit about the age that she started there, as if Fran Kubelik lost her job as the elevator girl, went through a series of things that went nowhere, and ended up there. Funny that you say that, because I think it could play almost as a sequel to The Apartment. There are so many echoes of it in here. Of course, the looking for love in all the wrong places, the girl who's a born romantic. Pivotal scenes in an elevator. It's like they're making intentional nods to it sometime, it feels like. So things didn't work out for her and Cece Baxter, and this is where she ends up still lamenting the fact that she cannot just find a nice guy. The difference in this case being that staginess that I mentioned. Whereas that plays as very pure in the apartment, I keep waiting and waiting in this film for her to just drop that and look straight at me and, and be real for a minute. It does eventually happen, but not very much. I do still disagree to an extent because I think she's being as real as she can or as real as she will let herself be for all of the times that she's been so hurt, literally moments before. Maybe the thing that's between me and appreciating this as much as you is that thing I was saying about, I don't know that this plays to her strengths. I don't think of her as a musical performer, a singer, dancer. I don't think of her as a triple threat. I think of her as a character actor which I think she thinks of herself of as well. The thing about that is when you say that, it has certain specific gender implications. People don't typically think of women as character actors, I think. If you say character actor, everybody thinks of, oh, that guy in that thing. But some of our favorite character actors are women. Thelma Ritter, Allison Janney, Ruby Dee, Agnes Moorhead, Colleen Dewhurst, Elsa Lanchester, your favorite Shirley Booth. <laughs> <laughs> I think of McLean definitely in that tradition and not as a musical performer. So I have a bias. I'm going to disagree a little bit again. And I think that that goes back to context. What are you going to say? You don't love Shirley Booth? I do love Shirley Booth. I do love Shirley Booth. <laughs> these bleeds? You're going to shove these bleeds <laughs> on my Shirley McLean started out in musicals. That doesn't mean that's where she belongs. That's true, but she had to get through that in order to be seen as the character actor that she is. Okay. So I think that she can inhabit both places, but I think that's only because we saw her later work first and then worked backwards slightly. Good point. I might think of it differently if I went along that journey with her and evolved as she evolved. Everybody is totally free to disagree with me, so... Send me notes if you've got other examples I would love to see him because I would love to talk about Shirley MacLaine all the time. Back to the action. Another night is over and she's on her way home and she happens to run into the Vittorio Vidal. Played by the Ricardo Montalban. Boy, you got that right. Between him and Charlie in the opening sequence, there sure are a lot of, quote, Italians, unquote, in this film. <laughs> Is that a Fellini connection, do you think? That's from the original production as well. I don't know if that's tied back to Fellini. I guess that's the idea of, as she says, boy, this sure is a foreign film, that our idea of the height of romance being Italian actors at the time. It might serve to undo it a little bit for me, I think, because it makes me think of Fellini in particular. And to directly compare the two, Sweet Charity, to me at least, is hamstrung by the expectations and conventions of the musical genre compared to Kabiria. Kabiria's strength is in these small, close-up moments of pathos. The scene where she's embarrassed at the magic show, the long walk of the finale. Have you seen it? I can't remember. I haven't. 
those moments, I guess, are easier to pull off when you're 20 feet tall on a movie screen. And like I said, not having to project to the balcony, but it also certainly gives it style for miles, like you were saying. I learned years ago that Sweet Charity was based on it. And then I have been putting off watching it because I wasn't sure I was emotionally ready for it yet. It's a tough one. It will certainly tug at your heartstrings. Right now, though, Charity can't believe her luck that she has happened into this amazing actor who has walked out from a restaurant in the middle of a fight with his girlfriend, gets into his limo, and then demands that Charity gets in with him. They're really immediately buddies. Again, I think about that idea of not forcing sexiness on us, at least in her role. Interesting that you say that, because yes, I was noticing that too. Sex is all on stage. The dancers in the Fandango, the dancers in the club that they go to, but it doesn't occur in these moments of what I could best describe as courtship, I guess. So is he saying sex is a strictly performative thing, specifically for display? According to many accounts, sex was the single biggest focus of Fosse's non-working life. He had a yeah. golden year that he referred to, in which he reportedly had sex with a thousand women. Wow. So it had to work its way into the fabric of his productions, but you're right. It's odd that it doesn't occur in these moments that typically would be seductive. It only happens in the context of people performing, at least in this movie. Because to me, Charity is an afterthought. She's a nobody. She gets smushed in the door, practically. Nobody notices her. What did they even do to have a sexy good time at the theater before Bob Fosse came along? Absolutely no idea. Was it the display of ankle? I have some titles for you. Hang on to your hat. These are kind of hot from the storied history of the theater. Uh-oh. Are we going to get song titles here? No, these are show titles. So this is the kind of thing that you had prior to Bob Fosse. The Pretty Druidess. Oh, my goodness. Clorindy, The Origin of the Cakewalk. <laughs> Wait a second. The Quaker Girl. Oh. Oh, my dear, with an exclamation point. Okay, full disclosure, these are all from the turn of the 19th century, but my point stands. <laughs> okay. Although, by the time you get to 1914, you do have the musical review Nuts and Wine, and it's probably pretty hard to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Nuts and Wine. Yikes. Thank goodness Bob Fosse came around to show us what's what. So Vittorio takes her to this fancy, fancy nightclub. This next big number is the rich man's frug. We have the appearance of our first genuine triple threat here, Ben Vereen. That is Mr. Ben Vereen, amazing. We're going to see him again in another performance. You mentioned that Edith Head thought of this as an exaggeration. She approached it like a satire, right? And I wonder how much Fosse did as well, because any minute here in this sequence, I keep waiting for Goldie Hawn to pop out of the floor and tell a joke. Oh my gosh, I almost want to tell you one of the links I'm going to use in the post, but I'll save it. Okay. It's very true. She did approach it as a satire. She said it wasn't fashion, it was satire of fashion. And yet, in the extreme Edith Headway, there is so much detail at work here. Every single person has their own hairstyle, hat, makeup, detail in jewelry, in drawings on their bodies that we don't even get to see in close-up, their own costume as well that is all completely different from every other costume. Is this satire slightly at Charity's expense? Is it, you think, Edith Head trying to put across what Charity thinks of as glamorous? I took it more even if it's misplaced, as a satire on the people themselves at the nightclub, about the ostentatiousness, about the ultra-modern aspect of it. And yet everything she makes is so functional, I think maybe even the satire gets a little bit lost. It's hard to pick up if you're making fun of everything when you make it look so damn good. This is a huge number here, the rich man's frug. It's really amazing to see all of those dancers at work and the full fruition of that Fosse choreography. And then in that misfit fashion, Vittorio invites her to dance and that big dance is ruined by her stepping on him. So now it's back to his place 
And again, she is the afterthought. She's treated almost like a dog because he literally snaps for her and she's delighted by it. We get this discussion here that definitely reminds me of the apartment again, this idea of these things just seem to happen to me, and I guess you're supposed to know why you do things, but I don't know why I do. Is that true? Is she being a little obtuse or disingenuous? Because it does come out that without love, life has no purpose. Love is a religion. So she clearly understands what drives her. She knows where she wants to get to. Do you think she genuinely doesn't understand why she makes these decisions in between those two points? She has to know why she makes these decisions. It's all in the pursuit of this thing. She just chooses the wrong vehicles for it every single time. So that's the question she should be asking herself. I know there's a part here that you really like, that you really laugh out loud to. And that's one of her mottos to certain people that come into the dance hall. And that is, up yours. She delivers that with such a plum. This is where I can see Shirley MacLaine over Gwen Verdon. She's going to do it in another time, a really funny moment here in a few minutes. But before that, we get the if they could see me now number. Unfortunately for a generation of people potentially ruined by Kathy Lee Gifford. I don't know that this version does it any favors either. I don't know how you feel about it. Maybe not the same as me, as we've been discovering as we go. That's correct, because you're crazy if you say anything other than it is wonderful. It goes on one verse too long. I could see why Gwen Verdon got tired during the 600-plus show Broadway run of it if this song went on this long every night. Funnily enough, it's I'm a Brass Band that happens later that is one of the longest numbers in musical history. Well, this must be second place by about two seconds. Okay. I really like it because of the prop work that he's so known for and that he stole liberally from Fred Astaire. I can see that building and it should follow traditional theater rules, I think. You know, follow the rule of three here, not the rule of 16. <laughs> okay, we get the picture. I also really like it because it's pretty bawdy as well and it's just her. I think, again, that her body that's a little bit too tall for something more classic like ballet is in great form here, and that, again, she is not afraid to do whatever and go wherever and show whatever. Sadly, though, wet blanket, Ursula, Vittorio's girlfriend, shows up, and afterthought Charity gets shoved into a closet to listen to them do it all night, only to be put into a cab the next morning. Her performance in this sequence where she is shoved into the closet is probably my favorite through the whole film. It's the most distilled comedy, I think, of the whole film. And she delivers all these signature moments so well. And I really love the way she even eats a sandwich. I would rather watch her eat that sandwich for an extra verse instead of listen to more of that song. Okay. If I could eat this now. <laughs> right. She's back at the Fandango again. Nobody believes that she met the Vittorio Vidal until they see what she came away with, the souvenirs of the evening, and then they believe her because she's the sort that would get the cane and the collapsible top hat as opposed to getting to nail Vittorio Vidal. And a mink coat in the bargain. This leads into another pivotal scene the there's got to be something better than this number. Somehow I know all of these songs. They so permeate pop culture, or at least the pop culture that I've paid attention to, even though I have never seen this film before just the other night. I know, well, almost all of them. I would say of the six major production numbers, I knew five. I think the musical itself is also front-loaded. I think the best stuff is in the beginning sections. This is also the one I tried to practice so often. And then, surprisingly enough, years later, it's the impetus for the single lady video. You weren't all the time singing Where Am I Going instead into the mirror? No, I was always focused on those high-octane songs. I bring that one up because this is one of my favorite Gwen Verdon stories, actually. We mentioned that she did the choreography for this, and we mentioned that she was a little bit on the older side when it came time to make the film, so she was not cast. I assume probably because Shirley MacLaine was a much more bankable entity at the time. But looking into it, I discovered she didn't even make it the entire Broadway run. That show went over 600 performances, and she didn't make it to the end of that either. 
Late in the run, she was replaced, but even before that happened, as she started to get more tired, occasionally she would give herself a break if need be and cut the act to ballad, Where Am I Going? Which she never really liked singing in the first place. And at one performance, a gentleman noticed that this song had been cut and expressed his unhappiness by writing a letter to her. <laughs> and he complained about the missing song and he claimed he spent his hard-earned money to see her perform and that he felt cheated. So she got her calculator out and found out how much time the song took to perform and factored that against the price of a ticket, and she sent him a prorated check for that amount, which I'm sure was just probably 82 cents or something. There are a lot of Gwynverd and Shirley MacLaine connections throughout their lives, especially in this early to early mid part of their careers. Gwynverd specifically based her performance of charity on Shirley MacLaine as a person. She encouraged Shirley to go after the role. She is an uncredited assistant choreographer in the film. She took Shirley through every single dance. Going back specifically just for a second to the dancing, and especially in this number, because it is Charity, Nikki, and Helene, so Shirley, Cheetah, and Paula together. Cheetah remembered that Bob Fosse told her that she and Paula had to dance this perfectly in every single take because he was always going to go with the one that made Shirley look the best because she was the lesser of the three dancers. But they grew so close. They worked so hard together. I think they made each other better, and I do think that they make her shine. So I think it's so odd to then look at the performer that the character was styled around then in the role and people not think that she was cast perfectly for it. Well, count me among those people. I think I am in the camp that thinks she was slightly miscast in this. I was actually reading a review of this, and the reviewer said that Shirley MacLaine came off to her as shrill even. Now, I don't think it's that harsh. I don't think it's that far off the mark. But definitely you and they are not in the minority in thinking that she was miscast. I'm not in that camp. To me, it belongs to this long, sort of strange tradition of Shirley MacLaine and roles that were written for her, but not exactly for her, but that she ended up playing or playing some variation of in another film. She is charity, but she's not charity. But then she is charity. The Exorcist, in fact, William Peter Blatty was her neighbor and wrote that about her and the relationship she had with her daughter, intending for her to play it, but she didn't play it. But Ellen Burstyn played a very Shirley MacLaine version in the film, I thought. Wow, I had no idea. And then Shirley MacLaine ends up in a film like The Possession of Joel Delaney, which some people compare favorably to The Exorcist. Uh, not one of those people, but some do. I guess it's just the fate of the character actor, right? If you are not the leading lady that everyone is after, it's that whole Mary Astor thing. Who's Mary Astor? Get me Mary Astor. Get me a Mary Astor type. Who's Mary Astor? I wonder as well if it's... This idea that I think a little bit more about in kind of yesteryear, put that in quotation marks, that you have someone who is a personality and then you try to capture that on film. It doesn't quite work all the time. Which is odd because you can capture it so well in the apartment and then try to transfer almost the same thing here. And for me, it doesn't work quite as well because you're dealing with in this scene, for instance, you are dealing with these low expectations when they're singing about these jobs that they want. And she's the girl who cried wolf, but they love her anyway. And they're all beat up broads that no one cares about. And then we segue to the employment agency in the scene that we did for our opening sequence. And we're still talking about the limited options available for women at the time. And how even though we had such a cultural revolution that you mentioned from 1966 to 1969... The decade between the apartment and this wasn't a lot of movement forward, it seems like, in retrospect, when you see this character behaving so similarly, worried about all the same things, making as little progress. So the modest ambitions play well one way, but when you try to amplify them, and like Fosse says, sing them when you have no other alternative, maybe for me it just doesn't work as well. Or maybe it's just a personality thing for me, because I definitely like depressed charity better than chipper charity. Do you feel like it's just more real? There's no amplification happening that comes off as false for you? I don't think you need it. I think the artifice gets in the way. I want it delivered straight to me with no frills. 
I would rather she just sit down and tell it to me than sing it to me. So I guess I picked the wrong thing in choosing a musical of this. No, no, not at all. It's definitely fun to watch. And there's a ton in it that I enjoy. Like I said, I know all those songs. I love the Fellini source material, and it's interesting to see which way they went with it. So I wouldn't say at all that it was a waste. It's not something I might go back to. And I definitely enjoy Bob Fosse a lot. So it's valuable to me to view it as a step in his evolution. It's just not ever going to be my favorite. Gotcha. You don't want to choose the three-hour stage version of this in one set in German with no subtitles, for example. Did they just expand if they could see me now to fill up that extra half an hour? (laughs) You're the worst. I only just thought of this now during this discussion. I'm thinking about that personality versus artist versus role. And I think that she's wonderful in this. I think then when you go to something like Cabaret, you have Liza Minnelli in a perfect role, a perfect capturing of an artist and what they can do. And then to something like All That Jazz, I think that Roy Scheider is an example of not quite the right casting, but a truly great actor. Here's where I'm going to say you're crazy because he nails that thing. And like you were saying about this, maybe I think one of the huge advantages of that one is who in the world ever thought he would do that? Who thought Roy Scheider had that in him? I certainly didn't before I saw it, but I am a believer coming out of it. I think it's too distracting for me to watch him, for example, use the cane to make time and start a step, but you never see him finish it because he's not capable of finishing it, knowing that I'm supposed to be watching Fosse. Well, it's not like he can hunt sharks. (laughs) Okay. It's nowhere in the script. So ends Point Counterpoint with Erica and John Sununu. John Sununu. That's a little throwback for you. That's a nice bull. (laughs) Okay. Back to the film again. The result of that song, the idea behind the song, is that Charity, what is she supposed to do? Because she has no skills, which is made incredibly clear when she goes to this employment agency to look for a nice job. The whole episode is treated as a gag, which again just deflates any kind of hope or optimism that she had had, and that's when we see her in the elevator. This is three films in a row for us with her with significant elevator scenes. I mentioned The Possession of Joel Delaney as the third one. It's just one of those fun things that comes out when you watch film after film after film. You see these coincidental themes and motifs start to develop. But this elevator ride brings us back to another one of those apartment parallels and that whole why don't I fall in love with a nice guy bit. And whereas in the apartment I ask, yeah, why don't you? Here... I'm saying don't. I've learned something in the ensuing nine years between the apartment and here. She does fall in love with a nice guy, and it does not feel right because he is boring. Don't settle for less. That's John McMartin as Oscar. Oh, here is another crazy little odd parallel. I.A.L. Diamond actually did the first version of the script. Did he go heavier on the prostitution metaphor, or...? I'm guessing there was probably some undercurrents in there, more so than ended up in this. Another take in the favor of Knights of Kiberia to me, because that film pulls no punches when it comes to her occupation. But American audiences had to be reading between the lines, right? In Knights of Kiberia, Bosley Crowther himself (laughs) decried it as having a sordid atmosphere and her character as being insufficient, quote-unquote. Making a lot of harsh value judgments there, Bosley, and I think telling us a lot more about him than the movie. That's always every single review he wrote, it seems like. But in this day and age, to your point earlier about era and context, nowadays, if you watch it in 2017, 2018, I guess, since we just had the new year turn, when what she does for a living could be flatly stated, would contemporary audiences catch the subtlety of what they're trying to put across here? Would anyone watching it now ask what is so devastating and insurmountable about dancing for a living? As a kid watching this, I certainly didn't get all of that until she's a little bit more explicit a bit later on. But of course, I was much younger, so I would have to think that an adult watching this, understanding that you're looking at a Times Square dance hall hostess, there has to be some implication of this going on. 
but it's certainly never at any point expressly stated. But back to the dull milk toast in the elevator, that's John McMartin, who I enjoy very much as a performer. He's a big Sondheim guy, too. When the elevator stops and it's just he and Charity in there alone, he begins to lose it, a full-on panic attack. They're able to work through that, thankfully, when the lights come back on, when the elevator's working again. He works through his shyness in order to ask her out. And so begins their courtship, to me very much dominated in that sense of looking for someone who will love you. It's dominated by him talking about himself, projecting his ideals onto her. She doesn't get a word in edgewise. And so the question I always ask is, why do we like each other? Thankfully, though, this all leads into the wonderful Rhythm of Life tabernacle with the inimitable Sammy Davis Jr., Yet another triple threat. I'm sorry, but triple is not enough. This guy had to have been, what's, what's 10? What's 20? He's a dodecahedra threat. He's a Googleplex threat. All of this takes place in this sequence that is very much a nod to the hippie musical that was in vogue at the time. There are elements of hair, Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, all of that going on here. We have Ben Vereen again, very closely aligned to Pippin. And there is a specific reference to pot. The word is actually said out loud. You think that had them clutching their pearls on the great white way? I don't know. Or was everybody just trying to go the I love you Alice B. Toklas route and get in on it somehow? At any rate, it is super cool. What can't Sammy Davis Jr. do? I just want to hang out with that guy. That is exactly what I was going to say. I don't think I know any performer more in the whole wide world that my every response to whatever I see him do is, man, I just want to hang out with that dude. He's just so dang cool without any effort whatsoever. I was also really surprised to see how masterfully he uses the Fosse movements as well. Though as I'm saying it, why would I be surprised? Charity and Oscar have a big number here where they're essentially falling in love and getting engaged. She still has not told him exactly what she does and has gone along with the story that he's told himself that she works in a bank or some other normal, respectable job. Charity makes the decision finally that she's going to come clean and tell him who she is, what she is. It's the middle of the night. He's still in his bathrobe when she calls him to meet him and insists that they basically talk back to back so that he can't see her face as she's trying to reveal in this very explicit language that I'm this dance hall hostess. I get paid to dance and sometimes with some men dot 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 dot. He says that he already knows and insists that she still marry him. This next piece talking about it's the first time that she's happy, leading into I'm a Brass Band. It's a big, bullion to me, overly long, but I still have a lot of fun in it as well. I think mostly because you get to see other parts of New York that they get to take over. But it's all leading to this, let's go get married right now. She's going to go pick up her stuff from the Fandango, and they've thrown her a surprise party. Good old Stubby K bringing down the house with one last really great song. I do love this last song that he does here. He finally gets a number. I would have also been fine if it had been Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, but oh well. The one thing that upset me in this section, they are going to ruin a perfectly good $17 cake with all that confetti. You need to lay off that. They are. Now in this, I don't know if you felt the same way, but just looking at Oscar's face when he sees her tattoo... When he sees the party, when he sees the people in the light of day, it's clearly the end. Go back to Sunday school, chump. She doesn't need this. I think of that moment in Mighty Aphrodite when Mira Sorvino finally meets the man who thinks all of her stories are so interesting and fun and finds great happiness in all of it. This is what Charity should get. But instead, she's going to get dumped in the marriage license office. For the record, I love her wedding dress, and I would have told her so. It sets off her hair, it sets off her eyes. She is cute as hell. It's so pretty and blue and has those giant flowers. It's the definition of happiness. One thing, though, I do agree with that he says, he is saving her. 
to be attached to him would be a miserable life. And he is being honest. It's just a shame that it has to go this way. It hurts now, but she is so much better off. Totally agreed. And our final moments with Charity, back in the park, back inside the world, back with nature, the flower children literally come out to wish everyone good morning. Featuring Bud Court. Featuring Bud Court. She accepts a flower. She accepts their love. She sees other people, couples, being happy. It's a new day, a new hope. And she lived hopefully ever after, as the screen tells us. I like to read this ending as her realizing finally for the first time that it's all right to be alone. That's where the hope lies in this for me. There is an alternate ending. Well, I'm glad they didn't go that way because she needs to learn it's okay to be just herself. I'm also so glad they didn't go with it because it would have underscored and I think continued on this terrible stereotype of it doesn't matter if you like someone as long as they like you. The existence of this alternate ending makes me wonder and think back to, was there a turning point? You know, that moment in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead where they say, at some point we could have just said no. Is the visit to the dance hall that point? Does it go differently if they don't make that trip? Because I think the alternate ending is what plays out if they don't go there, but it just goes badly later, right? After they're married, when it's more difficult and complicated to extricate themselves from it, so they stay. Talk about a dark musical if it goes that way. To me, that alternative ending makes this much darker. I think that's true. Maybe I'm thinking about a little too much Neil Simon, but... If it doesn't go wrong there, it goes wrong at Niagara Falls that night when they're <laughs> in their honeymoon suite. So ultimately, you definitely come down on the side of out of context, out of time as the best way to view the film. Because it got mixed reviews definitely upon its release. It did, and clearly still does. People evaluating it now, some people will think that Shirley MacLaine's voice is not enough of a Broadway singer that she's not the dancer that the others are or that Gwen Verdon was, that she has more difficulty portraying those internal moments. All of which I could say is objectively true. And I still think of those as the positives. I think that her singing and her dancing portray the character as I actually envision the character. I think that she can absolutely sell those more subtle moments. I might say, even if it's a musical, watch it without the sound, look at her face. Look at her body movement. You don't have to compare this with something else like Easy Rider, for example, from the same year and expect the same thing. You don't have to know the internal struggles happening at the time with the studio, with the original producer, Ross Hunter, with Fosse trying to make this more modern, but also retain the grittiness of Knights of Kiberia. And just look at it as is an amazing first feature from an amazing director and choreographer and dancer and superstar with an actress really trying to go for something amongst the highest caliber of musical theater performers that there are. Don't compare it to the stage version because I think it's taken totally out of the proscenium and into New York. Look at its style and its content and then see what you think about it. Ultimately, what I think about it is that it's, for me, partially successful. There are a lot of things I enjoy about it, and you definitely make a good case for it. It's just not necessarily the one I would show to me if I was only going to show me one. Now that I've seen the rest, I like where it fits in to his filmography, but I really like Cabaret and Star 80, and I love all that jazz. Talk about your Fellini connections. That's Fosse's eight and a half. And that's the stuff I like most, the stuff that is so unique to them that could not possibly come from anyone else, whereas this doesn't quite have that yet. But it's his first feature, so that's understandable. I like this idea that just seems to be happening lately. We talked about it in the apartment with looking at three pivotal Jack Lemmon performances. We've now seen three different Shirley MacLaine performances in a row. Think about that Fosse filmography as well. Watch these things together and see how they compare or don't compare, how you might rank them, whether or not you can view them singularly or not. I think it's a fun way to go to get the most out of these film-going experiences. Well, speaking of that connection to Fellini and Eight and a Half and source material, I am just going to stick with recommending Knights of Kiberia. 
from 1957, directed by Federico Fellini. For all of you that love Sweet Charity that haven't seen it, you should check it out. It stars his long-suffering wife, Julietta Messina, and is about a prostitute in Rome searching in vain for true love. When we were on Criterion Now with Aaron, we talked about how Ingmar Bergman is one of those gateway directors to international films, and Fellini is as well. And this is a pivotal point in his career. La Strada was my first experience with him, and that is more in the Italian neorealism school. And later, he would become the idiosyncratic Fellini that we think of now with Eight and a Half. This film is the bridge between those two places. Like Charity, Kabiria is a woman out of step with her surroundings, particularly because her optimism and faith in human nature is such a force. And Julietta Messina is Fellini's ace in the hole here. She will break your heart in 10,000 ways. And the look she gives the audience at the end, letting us know wordlessly that it's going to be alright, much the same way Shirley MacLaine does, but to me much more effectively, communicates to me more than any show-stopping choreography ever could. And just as a last parting shot of Fosse's take on it, Fellini said, quote, My name is on the credits, but I disagreed with Bob Fosse's way of doing it on so many points. I prefer that the film be regarded as his creation. Discreetly trashing it, basically. But this is not to trash charity on my part. I like charity. I just love Kabiria. What about you? This was another happy accident that I didn't set out to watch this thinking that it was going to become my recommendation for Sweet Charity. And then as I watched it, I couldn't have picked anything else. And that is La Danse, the Paris Opera Ballet from 2009, the documentary by Frederick Wiseman. You might watch this and think, this has no real correlation to the story. It was a million small moments that made me think this was so inextricably linked in my mind. At one point, the artistic director, I believe, makes the comment that the dancer is both the racehorse and its jockey. There are a lot of discussions about age and retirement. At one point, one of the aging dancers, and by aging I mean maybe she's 30 years old, asks not to be considered for a role because she is finding at this point that jumps and point is too difficult for her. It's very clearly stated that the retirement age generally for dancers is 40 years old. That's the cutoff. You're done. So I couldn't help but think about Charity and her friends and where you end up. Beyond that, whether I'm thinking about it for Sweet Charity or not, it is sheer perfection. It's heaven from start to finish, because it's Wiseman, because it's dance, because it's the opera ballet. There's so much beauty and challenge and difficulty. And of course, as always, it's about an institution. So if you have any interest whatsoever in theater or dance or opera or ballet or modern dance, or simply how artists work, I hope you'll check this out. Well, it looks like to me we did it again. That's two great recommendations, as usual, Knights of Cabiria and La Danse, the Paris Opera Ballet. And that brings us to the end of episode 68. First and foremost, I would like to say a special thanks to Paul Dufresne and Michael Cannon for their Patreon support this time around. If you haven't taken a look at our Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com magiclantern. We offer a whole lot of neat perks at the $5 a month level. You gain access to all of our bonus episodes that we record for the Patreon, so that you never have to go a Monday without any magic lantern in your life. Aside from that, if you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who gave us feedback or shared the show since last time. Leanne Kubich, Tim Lego, Carly Weens, Adam and Allie at the podcast So That's How It Ends, Matteo Boscarol, and I wanted to say a special thanks to Marcus Penn for letting us link to his beautiful recollection about Uncle Boonmi who can recall his past lives and what a deeply personal film it is for him. You can find him at Pinland Empire or The Pink Smoke. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us there. And I would like to say thanks to some anonymous, wonderful person who left us another five-star rating. Thank you very much. 
If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.